we got some work to do this morning. Um, one of the most common objections to the Christian faith is the reliability of the Bible. Let's pray as we, as we start getting into this. Father, I just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to know you, Lord, to know your word. Your word is truth. The scripture is true, and I pray that you would reveal that to anyone who doubts that this morning. Lord, I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We love you, Lord. Forgive our sins. Make us right before you that we might hear from you. Protect us spiritually and physically and in every way that we might in this place grow in you as we talk about your word and your name. Amen. When people are attacking Christianity, one of the most common things that they will attack is this. They'll attack the Bible. They'll say all kinds of things about the Bible because, of course, if you can get rid of this, well, of course, you've gotten rid of all of it. This is one of the reasons why when people start twisting the Scripture to their own ends, what happens is the whole thing falls apart for them. This cannot be broken. This cannot come apart. It's either true or it's not. If it's not, we are wasting our time here and there's probably football on. Okay? If it is, this is what our lives should be about. And so the question is huge. We call the Bible Scripture. It's the writings of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Scripture has been attacked by so many people for so long and has stood the test of time and the furnace of conflict over and over. You find a book, you tell me about a book that has had as many attacks from every side as the Bible has. The first question you might ask yourself is, why? Why is this the source of so many people who want to attack it? Because it's true and it's transformational, and not everybody wants to be transformed. There are billions of people, including some of the most educated people in the world, who attest to the reliability and the truth of the Scripture. This is important that you understand. That doesn't prove that it's true. Doesn't prove that it's true. But when you hear the attacks on Scripture, keep in mind that there are people far smarter than me who have studied far longer than me that are absolutely convinced that the Scripture is true. From scientists to medical doctors to university professors to auto mechanics, even lawyers, if you can believe that, <laughs> believe in the Scriptures. This is because, of course, the Bible is true. Here are some things we believe about the Bible. We believe the evidence shows that the Bible is, one, inspired by God. We believe that the Bible is true in all that it teaches. We believe that the Bible is trustworthy, that you can depend on what it says, that you can live your life by it. And we believe that the Bible is the words of life through Jesus Christ, that that's how you find Jesus that's how we learn about Jesus, is through the scriptures. These are things that we believe about the Bible. And you will hopefully have noticed that I said we believe the evidence shows that the Bible is true. Not we believe because we want to believe. Not we believe because someone told us to believe. And my mom told me it's true, and so therefore it's true. My mom told me a lot of things. Many of them are true. Sometimes she was wrong. Very rarely, but it happened. But here's the thing. I don't believe the Bible based on what somebody told me. I believe the Bible based on the evidence. 
For those of you either online or here, some of you may end up sending this message to, to people who, who are atheists or agnostic or attack the Bible. And many of you have probably watched YouTube videos or popular TV shows or popular books that claim the Bible's untrue or unreliable. I ask you to consider the possibility that the teachers that you've listened to that have said that are wrong. Consider that possibility. Open your mind and heart to the possibility that they're wrong. And for those of you who take a mocking tone against the scriptures, which many do, people suggest things like talking snakes and parting the Red Sea. Those things are too wild to be believable by intelligent people in 2023. If that's you, if that's, or that's people you know, I want to just caution a couple of things. One, to mock the word of God, inspired by the God who created the universe, created the world, and created you in his own image and likeness. The God who keeps us existing by his will and grace, at any time could just be done holding the universe together. To mock his word, it's not just bad theology, it is immoral and foolish. And so I caution you against that. On the second point for those folks, I will defer to C.S. Lewis, who put it better than I can. He says this, there is no need to be worried by facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying they do not want to spend eternity playing harps. This is the kind of thing that people will say. The answer to such people is that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. That's the other warning. Because when you see, and you see this now because anybody has a platform, they go on YouTube or TikTok or they can say whatever they want, there's nobody to fact check them. So they say whatever they want to say, and the fact is, is that they're saying things that mountains of scholarly evidence show are completely untrue. But you don't know that because you just flip to the video and say, like, whoa, that sounds, that sounds bad about the Bible. It's probably not true, whatever they're saying. The Bible is not a simple book, okay? And it's not a silly story. It is truth from one cover to the other. It is full of history, poetry, law, prophecy, theology, faith, hope, and love. To believe that you can cast aside the most important and truthful book ever given to mankind is more than just arrogant. It is foolish. It is foolish. So I ask you to consider the evidence. We've been in this series called Truth for Thinkers. Been in there for a little while. And part of what I'm trying to do is to help those who don't believe and have not been convinced of the truthfulness of God, of Jesus Christ, of the scripture, to draw them, but also for those who do, to strengthen their understanding of the things that they believe. That's why we do these series, these skeptics series from time to time. First of all, I need you to remember that people have tried to pick at the scriptures, pick and pick and pick, and prove them wrong for literally thousands of years. And contrary to what some listening to this may believe, no one has been successful. No one has been successful. In fact, you are much more likely to come to faith and follow Jesus Christ if you search the scriptures than you are to reject the Bible, as many can attest from the scholar who tried to prove the Bible was wrong historically by looking at the books of Luke and Acts and became convinced of the reality and became a Christian to guys like David Suchet, who plays Hercule Poirot in the Agatha Christie BBC series, not these new movies that they're doing. The old Poirot, you know what I'm talking about, the good one, came to faith by just reading the Bible. 
not raised to be a believer at all, read the Bible, got convinced to so many that have looked to this, to the word of God, and been inspired by the Holy Spirit and drawn to Jesus Christ through it. That's the more likely thing that's going to happen if you actually put the time in. If you just watch YouTube videos, yeah, you might think it's not true. If you actually get into the word of God, it will transform you. That's what it does. That's what it does. And many, I hope, before the end will be transformed by it. I want you to think about this, though. These days, the books we are supposed to trust the most are science books. Those are the ones you're supposed to trust the most, right? After all, they tell us, the scientists tell us, that they're the ones using the best methods to find facts. But here's the problem. You can't trust science books because they are often wrong. Often, books that were written a few years ago, we find out that everything that they said was true, they were wrong about. They did the experiment wrong. They included the wrong things, whatever. And the scientists will tell you, well, the reason that these older science books are full of nonsense is because science is a study that gets better and better over time. And old ideas are often replaced by new ideas as their understanding grows. Fair enough. But that's not how scientists talk at all. In fact, if you question the scientific consensus on any topic, you might as well wear a sign that says, I'm a caveman, right, to the world. Well, the scientists, they're saying that thing. So they talk about what they say as if it's completely true until five years later, it's completely not. And they don't even really go, whoops, they just go, we've evolved our understanding. And we go, no, we, we call that in everything else lying, right? Deception, because you put it out there as if it was definitely true. The Bible, on the other hand, holds up year after year, millennia after millennia. No new ideas. Doesn't need to be new. There is nothing new under the sun. What's true has been true and remains true and keeps proving to be true. There's an article from the Washington Post from, I think, January of 2001. So a little while ago. Some of you probably weren't born yet. It's titled, 12 Science Textbooks Have Many Errors Study Finds. And here are some quotes from the article. Here's one of them. Twelve of the most popular science textbooks used at middle schools nationwide are riddled with errors a new study has found. Now, when you were taught science in school, did they tell you, maybe this is right, maybe it's not, or did they say, this is the science? Maybe just like that. I don't know. Depends which lady taught you. Um, Ladies don't talk like that. I'm kidding. Researchers compiled 500 pages of errors, ranging from maps showing the equator passing through the the southern United States to a photo of singer Linda Ronstadt labeled as a silicon crystal, which I don't think she is. None of the 12 textbooks has an acceptable level of accuracy, said John Hubis, a North Carolina State University physics professor who led the two-year survey released this month. These are terrible books, and they're probably a strong component of why we do so poorly in science, he said. Hubis estimated about 85% of U.S. children use the textbooks examined. These completely messed up, untrue, error-riddled textbooks. The study's reviewers tried to contact textbook authors with questions, Hubis said. But in many cases, this is the most interesting to me, the people listed as the authors said they didn't write the book, and some didn't even know their names had been listed. Some of the authors of a physical science book, for example, were biologists. So, we talk about trusting books, and people talk like they can trust almost any book but the Bible. 
And here we have an example where 85% of middle schoolers at the time, some of, that, some of those people were you. Some of you were probably that age in middle school and used these books in middle school. And you were being told that you were being told facts by your teachers who were actually giving you bad facts that you were supposed to believe. Meanwhile, the world was telling you that the scripture was false, but it turns out your science teacher was full of it and your Sunday school teacher was right. Now that is a reality. I'm not just making that up. The fact is, is that this gets tested for errors every day in every way by everyone, and none of them stick. And a simple survey of the science books that we teach our children are studying, and they're like, this is complete nonsense. And these are big manufacturers, like Prentice Hall. These are the big boys, right? 85% of students. My point is, the people who want to say that you can't trust the Bible are often the people who trust in completely unreliable sources regularly. So slow your roll if you believe that the world is producing a more accurate view of reality than God has done in his revealed word, the scripture, to men, women, and children on earth. Slow your roll a little bit. The scriptures are true. There is another problem. This is one that we all need to think about kind of before we get into all the evidence and so on. And that is that the scriptures will do you no good if you won't follow them. The scriptures will do you no good if you won't follow them. Some of us, you may have a Bible in your home that you don't read. You can have a Bible in your house that you read and you don't do what God commands in it. In both cases, you are missing the point. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. By the way, there's Bibles in front of you if you want to follow the scripture in an actual physical copy of the word of God. Also, if you don't have one of these at home, or yours is broken, and I've told people many times, if, it's, if you're not reading that, maybe it's broken, bring one of these home with you. It's free to you. If you would like to take one of these home, you do not owe us anything. That's our gift to you. We want you to have the word of God in your home. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. That's in the New Testament. If you are new to the Bible, uh, kind of towards the back. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God breathed. It's from him and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible has use. It's not just there. It has a use. And this is the use. It's intended purpose for teaching, for instruction in righteousness. It's intended for your good. So at the end of the lesson, at the end of this study, at the end of this sermon, or probably more like the next two, if you believe the Bible is true, which you should, but you do not let it press against you and transform your life, you're missing life altogether. I'm telling you about the truth of Scripture and its reliability so that you can believe in Jesus Christ and have life in Him, in the God who made you. I want you to have life in the God who has a plan for you. I am not trying to prove that the scripture is true to prove a point so that you don't think I'm dumb for believing it or to prove a point for the sake of an argument. I don't care as far as that goes what you think about my intelligence. I do care what you think about Jesus Christ because he is the one who can and will save you if you'll call upon him. I care about the truth of the Bible and you believing in it 
so that you'll follow it. I care about the truth of the Bible because among other beautiful truths in Scripture, it says this, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, this is Romans 10, 9 through 10, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I want you to believe the Bible is true so that you believe that that is true. I want you to believe that the Bible is true so that that presses against you, so that that transforms your life, so that you can be saved out of darkness and spiritual death in this world and come into light and know Jesus and have eternal life in him. I believe that Jesus Christ died for me and for you and that he rose again, defeating sin and death and hell and that you can have everlasting life, eternal life in him. But it does not matter if you believe the scriptures are true if in the end of the day, you don't really want life. It doesn't do you any good. Jesus tells a story about a rich man who dies and goes to hell. And this poor beggar named Lazarus who lived outside his home who also dies. And he goes to Abraham's bosom. There's this great chasm between them, right? He's being, he's being comforted in Abraham's bosom. And this rich man is in torment in hell. And there's a, there's a story that goes along with it, but one of the things that happens is the rich man from hell asks Abraham from across that gulf between them to have Lazarus, the beggar, go to his brothers and essentially preach to them so that they won't go to hell also like him and be in torment. And Abraham tells this rich man, he says, they have the scriptures, the law and the prophets. That's a way that we refer to the scriptures in the New Testament. They have the law and the prophets. They got the scriptures. They got Moses. It's also a reference to the scriptures. But the rich man says that having Lazarus go to them would work because they would see someone who rose from the dead and that would do the trick. And Abraham answers this rich man. And here's what the scripture tells us he said to the rich man. Nope, nope, where is it? Nope, okay, I'll just read it to you. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they do not find it in the scripture, if the scripture is not getting through to them, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. This is a powerful thing. You have to understand something. There are people who, by and large, believe this is true. Even the demons believe that, know it, and shudder because they know what's going to happen to them. But there are people who believe that this is true who will not let it crack the stone of their heart. There are people who believe that this is true who will go to hell because they refuse to follow Jesus. He thinks, oh, send somebody, you know, send Lazarus. If they see him from the dead, then of course they'll believe. Well, of course Jesus was predicting what would happen. He rose from the dead. The evidence is insurmountable. Many infallible proofs as we read in the first part of the book of Acts. It was very clear. Our eyewitnesses all over the place. We know Jesus rose from the dead, and yet people did not just because of that turn. They had the Bible. They had all of Jesus' miracles. They had, his, they had his proclamation that he was God, that the Bible was true. He rose again. It still did not change the hearts of those who refused to have their hearts of stone be turned into hearts of flesh. And so my warning is, don't get into all of this just as evidence of the scripture, which is incredibly strong and its reliability, if you're not, once you realize it's true, actually going to let it change you. Because there's no point in that. 
I, I don't have time for that with you, okay? This isn't just an exercise in philosophy or just apologetics for their sake. It's about understanding this is true so that even more, it has authority in your life. So let's get into the evidence. Let's get into the evidence. First, I want to start with what Scripture says about Scripture, okay? We already read one claim, God inspired to be written in the Bible, which is this one here. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God is truth. Most people will at least agree with that. If there's a God, he's definitely telling the truth. Right? If there's this good God, this benevolent God, he's definitely telling the truth. So if Scripture is given by inspiration of God, it has to be true. Because God is truth and all that he inspires is truth. Well, what does God say about it? What does Jesus say about it? Let's look at Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. That's the scripture. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle. One jot or tittle will by no means pass the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever doesn't teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So what is Jesus saying about the scripture? Well, what it, the first thing he's saying that's implied in this is that he believes the scriptures are true. He's constantly quoting the scriptures. He's saying, I fulfilled the scriptures. He knew they were true. He also knew they were about him. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. In this case, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. He's saying everything, all of it, all of it is about me. Jesus unquestionably believed the scriptures were true and said that the Holy Spirit would be sent to his followers so that they would have the truth also, which is why we have scripture in the New Testament that was written by those who are followers of Jesus. Most importantly, Jesus died and rose again, exactly like he said he would, exactly as the scriptures predicted he would in his resurrection from the dead. And in that, Jesus Christ verified that he was God, that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And therefore, if he says the scriptures are true, they most certainly are true. And here's the deal. If you can find somebody who legitimately predicts his own death and rises from the dead, who can tell you they're not true, then we'll talk about that. We'll look at that person compared to Jesus. But until that happens, I'm going with the God who rose from the dead. But let's deal with some of the objections people often bring up because most people are going to say, well, yeah, we know Jesus believes the scripture. We know the scripture says it's true, but that doesn't prove anything. Well, the resurrection is pretty strong proof that the things Jesus said were true, but let's move on. What are the objections people bring up? Here are the most common objections you are likely to hear concerning the Bible. The first one, transmission. Transmission. And you might want to take notes here. That's up to you. Here's the claim. The Bible was not copied correctly, that's his form, but it's from, from the original, so we do not have the words of the original. That's the first objection that you will hear. People will say, hasn't been copied correctly. The second one, translation. 
The claim is the Bible has not been properly translated or it has been translated from a translation, from a translation, from a translation, and on and on and on. And so we can't trust it, okay? The third one, translation, is translating from the original text into another language, just so you know what I'm talking about there. Canonization. This is the third one. Here's the claim. The books of the Bible were decided by people with an agenda. And some books that should have been left out are in, and some books that should have been in are out. That's another claim, that the Bible has been doctored, so we only have the things that people wanted in there who wanted power. Those are three massive objections that you will hear people making about the Scriptures. So I think it's only fair that we answer those objections. Let's start with transmission. The skeptic will ask, how do we know that the text of the Bible is the same text that was originally written down? And that's fair. It's an important question, right? We want to know that when we're reading the Bible, that this is what was originally written. That's important because if it's the word of God, well, it's the word that was written at the time that it was written. So if it hasn't been transmitted correctly, that's a problem. And here's the problem is fair. We don't have any known original documents, original manuscripts of the Bible. We have none of them, okay? When John wrote the book of 1 John, that piece of paper with his writing, we do not have. True of all the books of the Bible. True, by the way, of anything that old. We don't have it, okay? But we do not have anything but copies. Now, this would be a problem for transmission, for making sure we got to the original transmission of the Bible correctly. But it is not, because we have a useful tool, a process we call textual criticism. Textual criticism. Um, textual criticism is how we take copies of ancient documents where the original document doesn't exist anymore and are able to work our way and triangulate our way back to what the original text is. And very, very smart people from all, all walks, okay? Atheists, Christians, Muslims, Jews, whatever, they all, they all have the same stuff to work with and they all have to work to try to get to the original of a text. Let me give you an example of sort of how it works. I wrote a book years ago. Thanks, Mom, for reading that. That was good. I'm glad somebody did. If I lost the book, the original of the book, it's gone. And all I've got is, say, 100 handwritten copies of that book that are out there somewhere. And I wanted to put back, find what had been written in the original book based on those handwritten copies. And the copies had some differences in them. I would have to do a few things, right? Like I would have to look at which copies were made, which were the oldest copies, the ones made closest to the original book that I had. Those would probably be more likely to be accurate than ones that were made much later. That makes sense, right? Are there 90 copies that have 14 chapters and 10 that have 13? If so, probably the 90 are right and the 10 are wrong. Right? And you go through this process of figuring out by reason, by how old something is, by how many copies attest the same thing, so that if you have variants, you can figure out what originally was there. And we do this for all ancient documents. Okay? All ancient documents are dealt with in this way. We triangulate and triangulate through the copies to get to what the original said. All books, okay? So the question is, do you have enough copies, and are those copies close enough in time to the original? And we have a kind of a standard for that among scholars. For instance, we have works from Aristotle. 
I don't know how many of you know who Aristotle is. He's a philosopher, a Greek philosopher, about 400 years before Christ, but basically that era of the ancient world, okay? And we have works from him. Here's a quote from one of his works. It says, Accordingly, the poet should prefer probable impossibilities to improbable possibilities. This is from Poetics by Aristotle. We believe it's accurate. We believe that is the quote correctly. We believe that Poetics is correct, that it is the original based on the copies we have and how close in time they are to when he wrote Poetics. Now, in this case, through textual criticism, this is what we had to work with, okay? For Aristotle, for Poetics, we have 49 copies, okay? So 49 copies. The oldest copy, in other words, the one, the one that is closest to the original, is about 1,400 years after the writing of Poetics, okay? So 49 copies. The, the oldest one we have is 1,400 years after it was written, and we believe that through that, we've got good evidence to know what was in Poetics, the Aristotle's work Poetics. No problem. Scholars are good with that. I'm good with it. I think we do. I think we have Aristotle properly through those copies. Textual criticism is what they used to do that. They take the 49 copies where they were different. Well, what did the older ones say versus the newer ones? What, what makes sense and so on? They've come back and they said, okay, we've got it. It's not great evidence, 49 copies, 1,400 years after the original, but it's not terrible evidence, and there really is no dispute about its accuracy, okay, just so that you understand. There are other ancient documents. I've written a few down here for you, and maybe you can see them up here on the screen. And for Pliny, we have seven copies. The oldest copy is 750 years after Pliny wrote. For Plato, we have seven copies. The oldest copy, 1,200 years after Plato wrote. Thucydides, I'm not going to even try Thucydides. It's all Greek to me. Uh, eight copies. <laughs> oldest copy is 1,300 years after he wrote. Euripides, nine copies. Oldest copy is 1,300 years after he wrote. Aristophanes, 10 copies. Oldest copy, 1,200 years. Uh, Caesar, 10 copies. Oldest copy is 1,000 years after. Tacitus, 20 copies. Oldest copy, about 1,000 years afterwards. Okay? So this is, this is kind of a, a survey of some of the other works we have. Now, these are important works. It's important that we have them accurately because... This is where we get a lot of history. A lot of what we use to get the history of the ancient world, we get through these documents, okay? So if they're not accurate, we don't have accurate history. And historians feel pretty good about it. Scholars are pretty good with what we have. We feel like we have enough to triangulate, okay? These books we put forth, if you go in and you want to get a copy of what Caesar wrote, you can go to the library. It's in the public domain because he died a long time ago. And you can get a copy of Caesar's works. And that copy will be textual criticism. It will be the copies that were made in this case, in Caesar's case, the 10 copies they had, the oldest one being about 1,000 years after Caesar wrote, and they'll have put those things together and figured out what was actually in the original that Caesar wrote, and you'll get that, and they won't say, we don't know. They'll say, this is it. This is it. Best example we have from the ancient world is Homer's Iliad. It's pretty good, okay? Homer's Iliad, we have 643 copies. And the oldest copy we have is only 500 years after the original. So that's really, really good. We, we've got the Iliad on lock. Solid. 643 copies, and they go as back as far as 500 years after the original. Scholars are good with that. We feel like we have an accurate Iliad. What was written is what was there. Some of you are starting to glaze over. This is important, so listen up. Listen up. 
This is the best we have for the ancient world. Okay? Now, when I say that Homer's Iliad is the best example, what I'm saying is that Homer's Iliad is the best example other than the New Testament. Other than the New Testament. Scholars believe that they have been able to accurately find the original text of all these other documents by using textual criticism, that process I talked about, from these numbers of documents and these ages that I showed you. This is how we have these documents from the early world. So let's look at what we have for the New Testament. In the case of the New Testament, we have 5,300 copies, and the oldest copy is 100 years after the original. Wait, I'm sorry. 5,300 copies if you don't count the 10,000 Latin copies and the 9,300 copies in other languages. We have around 24,000 total copies. 24,000 total copies, with the oldest one being about 100 years after the original. Okay? Unparalleled, no one's close, not within a million miles. The New Testament of the Bible is the most well-attested ancient document that there is. Bar none, it's not close. I showed you second place. The Iliad was 643 copies and 500 years after. 24,000 total copies, the oldest 100 years after. We've got the New Testament. Okay, we've got the New Testament. The textual criticism works. It is the most well-attested ancient writing we have. But are there variants? Well, of course there are variants. Why would you need textual criticism if they all said the same thing? No, there are variants. There are variants. Um, they're copies, right? They're not perfect. So we needed textual criticism to look at them. Now, there's a guy named Bart Ehrman, who is a major critic of Christianity. And he wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus. He brings up the fact that within this huge number of copies, 24,000 copies, there are over 400,000 variants in the text. And I'm here to tell you, it's pretty close. It's about right. About 400,000 variants. Now, here's the thing. Almost all of the 400,000 variants in the New Testament documents are made up of spelling errors, inverted words, where they put the wrong word in front of the other word, skipped lines of text where they were copying and they accidentally skipped a line, and stuff of that kind. That's almost all of those 400,000. In other words, Meaningless. Very easy to do the textual criticism. If you go, all of these documents have all of these lines, and this one's missing a line, and it doesn't make sense. Pretty easy to fix that, right? Or they spelled the word wrong, or whatever. So when you throw out numbers like 400,000 variants, I can't write. I had a misspelling, and I have spell check on just this thing today. That wasn't on purpose. It just happened to work out. I had a misspelling on that. Okay, people are going to misspell words, things like that. That's almost all of them. These types of variants do not cause any problem of reconstructing the original text. They're the type of thing you would expect to find in 24,000 hand copied. These are not done with a computer with spell check. This is somebody wrote this down, copying it. Shows you how important they thought it was. They copied it so much. Of the remaining variants, other than those, that kind of stuff, none of them, none of them affect the interpretation of any belief or Christian doctrine. Of the variants. And it's not just me who says that. You know who else says it? Bart Ehrman. The New Testament critic. This is what he says. The position I argue for in misquoting Jesus does not actually stand at odds with Professor Metzger's position that the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by the textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. 
So you can talk about 400,000 variants and blah, 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 but at the end of the day, you throw it all away when you go, it doesn't affect anything about what we believe or the teaching of Scripture or the way we do anything. So it is possible, there are a few parts, and actually, it'll be marked right here. If you look at these Bibles, no one's hiding anything. Right down here at the bottom, it will show you if there's a variant. Right there, on this page, uh, you have 31, 32. It says, following Masoric, Test, Targum, and Vulgate, Septuagint and, Septuagint, and Syriac, read, and then it gives you the reading of the Septuagint and Syriac. It's right there. No one's, no, this is not a secret, okay? This is not a conspiracy. It's all there. If there's a textual variant of any kind of, at all, they're going to show it to you in here. So, and you can see, and you know what they always are? Nothing. They just don't affect it. They don't affect the reading. They don't, they don't change the meaning. They don't do anything. It's all out there for you to see. So our New Testament is over 99% pure, okay? In other words, like we know totally 99 whatever point percent of it, and there's a little bit that we're not sure, and it affects nothing in what you believe. It affects nothing in what the Bible teaches, okay? There's a few places where that may, that may or may not have been original, that little thing. And it'll tell you right here whether, whether that's whether th people think it might not be original or whatever, but it affects nothing about our doctrine, our theology, our beliefs. 20,000 lines of the New Testament, there are 40 lines that are in doubt, about 400 words in the entire New Testament that are in doubt, and none of it affects any significant doctrine. That's the reality. Scholar D.A. Carson sums it up this way. What is at stake is a purity of text of such a substantial nature that nothing we believe to be doctrinally true and nothing we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by the variants. That's the reality. It's all out there on the table. There are variants, misspellings, whatever. A few places where you have what some people think are interpolations, something that may have been added later. It's all marked out for you here. You can see what it is. And none of them affect in any substantial nature, what's doctrinally true, what we're commanded to do, all of those kinds of things. So if you're wondering, did Jesus command that? Yep, if it's in there, he commanded it. You ain't gonna get a variant to get out of that, okay? The Bible is true. In commenting on the evidence for the integrity of the New Testament, Sir Frederick G. Kenyon, who was the director and principal librarian of the British Museum, and you know British people are smart, so don't come at me on this one. He writes this. The interval then between the dates of the original composition and the earliest existing evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written, in other words, translated correctly, transmitted, I'm sorry, correctly, has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. That's it. Finally established. So much for objections to transmission. They don't work. You just, if you go, I don't know that the New Testament is the, is the same thing they wrote, then you've got to definitely say we have no idea what Aristotle or Caesar or Josephus or Pliny or whatever, we have no idea what they wrote because they got nothing like the evidence we have. But we do think we know what they wrote. And we know we have what the New Testament wrote. So if somebody comes to you and goes, you have a Bible that's all kinds of corrupted, you can say, you have an education that's all kinds of corrupted because the scholars disagree with you. And even the scholars who are atheists and agnostic disagree with you. There's no question about the transmission of the Bible. I hope that helps. It is, we're gonna keep going for a minute. What about translation? This one's easy. The Bible was not translated 
by translating Greek into Latin and Latin into French and then French into Portuguese and Portuguese into Spanish and Spanish into English. That's not how it works. Okay, some people act like that's what happened. Like, oh, these translations are translations and all gets lost in translation. Remember telephone? And the next person does and by the end it's like, Uncle Joe's pants smell like, you know, it's the, you know, the original thing was something totally different. Fun, but not how it worked. No one was whispering, first of all. This is all out there. And second of all, uh, translations are not from language to language to language. The translations we have are from the original Greek, Aramaic, Hebrew into English in our case. Most of you, hopefully all of you are English speakers or you don't know what I'm talking about right now. So into English from the original text. It's true for other languages too. Into Spanish from the original text. They take the original text and they translate it. Okay? There is no issue with translation. Now some of you go, wait, wait a second. This one says... NKJV, and that one says ESV, and that one says NIV, and that one says NRSB, and that was so on. Okay, here's the deal. Um, English is not that easy of a language. If any of you are second language English speakers, you know that English is not that easy of a language. And a translator is going to translate in such a way that they're dealing with not only the difficulties of English, but the fact that it changes over time. I'll give you an example. When I was very young, um, to say that I was gay meant that I was happy. I'll leave you with that one. The language changes. Okay? It just does. I'm not making a comment about that. I'm just saying that's what happens with language. I could give you tons of examples. Okay? Riz? What's that? I don't know. Kids are saying riz. I'm like, well, I... Yeah. Okay. Language. Right? We just... It changes. It's like three people young enough to know what I'm talking about right now. But I got you, Riz people. Here's the deal. Translations are translators doing their best to take the Greek and English, but here's the thing. You don't even have to worry about that. Right now, we have all the online tools. You can go work with the original Greek, and you can do your own translation. Now, that you would be any better than the people who have dedicated their lives to studying Greek and translating it, I seriously doubt. But you can go on a resources like Blue Letter Bible or whatever. They will show you the Greek word. They will show you places in, in other Greek writings where it's used. They will tell you the definition of it, whatever. And you can put them all and you can do the thing if you want to and you understand that. I would just go ahead and trust the better translations. Now, that's translations. Not every Bible that you find at the store is a translation. Sometimes you'll find a Bible that's a paraphrase, or you'll find a Bible that is basically taking this and turning it into a Rice Krispies recipe, where they go, mm, Jesus then was like, dude, everything's cool, yo. And you're like, that's not, I, I, that's not Greek, right? <laughs> and it's not, so I'd stay away from those. Um, and you don't need me to tell you which ones those are. Just go online and be like, really bad Bible translations and you'll find out. But, but the thing with translation is, translators generally, you don't generally go word for word. If you've ever spoken a foreign language, you know that if you actually just took it word for word for word, it wouldn't make any sense. Spanish, you're gonna say things in the wrong place in the sentence compared to English and so on. So usually it's, it's idea for idea and the words are translated so that what is there comes out in English the way English should be. So that's how translations work. You can do it yourself if you want to. There's nothing to argue about when it comes to translation. It's just that simple. There's nothing to argue about. It, we translate, anyone can do it. It's not a secret. You could have an atheist do a translation or a Christian do a translation. You just, you've got the manuscripts. Those are available to everybody. 24,000 manuscripts. There they are. Learn Koine Greek and do it yourself. All right. Last one, it's 11.43, uh, 
Okay. I'm going to save this last one. It's 11.43, and I don't want you guys to feel like I keep you too long. And I've got to be honest, I have a lot more. We've got, we got to talk about the Bible for a while. So let's just call this a, a waypoint. And actually, um, we will get back to it the next time that we do this, um, which will actually be a couple weeks. But I want you to understand that the Word of God is extremely valuable. The Jewish people knew this. I mean, they would, they would uh, the Torah, I mean, they would, uh, they would dance with it. They, they're very serious about the word of God because they understood something. I don't think we always understand because these books are so ubiquitous. They're everywhere. There's, you know, this is the best-selling book of all time by far everywhere. Everybody's got one in their house. They're all over the place. And we sort of lose the value of what is contained here. The revealed word of God. This will change your life. And I don't mean it'll make you rich. And I don't mean you'll never be sick again. And I don't mean you're going to have a breakthrough. I don't mean any of that. You get a car and you get a car. No. It will change your eternity. It will change the way you live, the way you love, the way you think. It will change the way you spend money. It will change your sex life. It'll change the way you talk to people. It'll change you from a liar to a truth teller. It will change all of that. Because this is what God uses to instruct us in righteousness. This is what God uses to draw us into salvation. So the fact that it is transmitted correctly, translated correctly, canonized correctly, which Lord willing we'll get into next time, is extremely important because I want you to understand this is true and that your life should be guided by this. I understand that you have counselors in your life and you should. People who can talk to you. I understand that you come here to church where the pastors and the elders are here to teach you. At the end of the day, none of those people stand above this. This is what you use to test all of them. The word of God is the one thing that I can tell you without a doubt is true, right down to the roots. If you understand that, you can start reading it and they can start changing you. And some of you go, well, but some of it is just so weird. Yep, life is weird. There's all kinds of weird stuff. When something's true, it's gonna include the weird and the normal. It's your, this is your, this is your life's work to study this so that you know God more and more so that when you do see him face to face, it's not like meeting a stranger. It's like meeting the most important person that you've ever had in your life and that you've known him through his word. And so I ask that if you are not saved, that you get saved. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and be saved and start the journey of transformation that this is the book for. This is where the truth is. If you want to find a man or a woman that is just growing and showing all the fruit of the Holy Spirit, you're probably going to find a man or woman that's done a lot of reading this, a lot of studying this, a lot of getting, being taught this by good teachers, a lot of discernment. This will get you a lot of discernment because when somebody says something, you test it against this. That's what the Bereans did when Paul taught to them. They went and checked him by the scripture. This is so important. I cannot tell you enough. I exhort you in the Lord. Understand the value of the scripture. Wake up 
thinking about it. Go to bed thinking about it. I, I have the same issue. I do not think as often as I should, even close to the glory that we have, that we're actually, I can actually read the revealed word of God. These words in red, that Jesus Christ said these things. Jesus Christ said them. You have that. Maybe, not always Netflix. Maybe this. Maybe, maybe this might change you in, in a better way. I love you guys. I want you to know the truth of the scripture. If you do not know Jesus Christ, I want you to know him. <laughs>